Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing. And everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test. And coming up on this week's episode, we bring you Endocrine Essentials with Dr. Bethany Hayes. Dr. Hayes will give you a high-level view of progesterone. What is it? What does progesterone therapy do? And who does it help? Bethany Hayes, MD, has retired from a long career in medicine, where she was a board-certified OBGYN and practiced obstetrics for 29 years. She delivered her first baby in 1972 as a medical student at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and delivered her last baby in 2001. She then created a holistic health center in Falmouth, Maine for 14 years. Dr. Bethany Hayes was also the medical director of True North, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to change healthcare in America. She has been teaching for the Institute for Functional Medicine since 2000 and previously served on their board of directors. Dr. Hayes has been affiliated with Baylor College of Medicine, University of Vermont Medical School, University of New England, and Dartmouth Medical School, and is currently affiliated with Tufts Medical School. Now, let's get started with the show. Thanks, Noah. And thanks to Dr. Hayes for joining us today to have a little conversation about progesterone. Um, You've always been one of my faves when it comes to uh, providers whose brains I got to pick Um, because very, very early on, um, you listened, uh, and then you critiqued very well and you gave us some really good questions that helped kind of for what we're doing to sort of take shape and to help us, um, in a healthy way to critique what we were doing and how we were presenting it and, uh, bringing up some of those questions that we needed to be asking. Now, a lot of those centered around estrogen and we had some great conversations with Dr. Tara Scott about estrogen and its role and what does it mean when it's out of whack. And of course, that gets you right into the dance that estrogen does with progesterone. So if you could, I'd like you to just give us um, your rendition of what progesterone is and what its role is primarily in uh, female physiology. Well, first, let me say that I also enjoyed um, our conversations uh, early on and ever since then because of your extraordinary understanding of the literature and the laboratory, and it cleared up a lot of uh, questions that I had that didn't make sense from, from what I was reading. So let me talk a little about progesterone. Um, So progesterone is often referred to as the uh, anti-estrogen, but it really is probably better thought of as estrogen's partner. And in most places where you find estrogen uh, receptors, you will also find progesterone receptors. And they have some similarities. Estrogen has an alpha receptor and a beta receptor, and one is stronger and one is not as strong, or one does one thing and one does the opposite thing, depending on the tissue that it's in. And progesterone does the same thing. It's got an alpha receptor and a beta receptor, or a receptor A and a receptor B, I think they call it. And uh, they do different things depending on what tissue they're in. So um, progesterone uh, was originally found in the corpus luteum of the ovary, which is the, uh, the area of the ovary that produces progesterone after ovulation. And it... 
supports the lining of the uterus to become receptive to the embryo as the embryo comes into the uterus and implants. If progesterone hasn't been there to create the nice, soft, fluffy uh, bed for the embryo to land in, it just doesn't land and you don't get pregnant. As soon as the pregnancy is established, then the production of progesterone gets turned over slowly over the next several weeks to the placenta. So during pregnancy, the placenta makes a lot of progesterone. And what it's doing is to help the uterus grow from a tiny little uh, pear-shaped organ in the pelvis to this great big muscle that uh, holds, nourishes, and then gives birth to the baby. And in order to make that change, you need a lot of progesterone. So the placenta makes progesterone. And that was where we first discovered progesterone. And so they called it the progestational hormone. It was the hormone that kept pregnancies going. Uh, when the progesterone um, falls off, then the estrogen makes the uterus more irritable and labor begins to occur. So uh, progesterone has a, uh, an annoying habit <laughs> from a laboratory point of view of going up and down and up and down and up and down, which makes it very hard to measure. Um, and that's been one of the problems that we've had understanding progesterone is when do you measure it? Do you measure it in the morning? Do you measure it at night? Do you measure it in premenopausal women? Do you measure it in postmenopausal women? Do you measure it at the first part of the cycle, mid-cycle, at the end of the cycle? And uh, it is um, a, a changing uh, hormone, um, which makes it, I think, really interesting. And uh, what what has always sort of been the case is progesterone, which is really like progesterone. You, you know, it doesn't matter. You can give as much as you want. And people haven't really understood the intricacies of progesterone. So I've done a few deep dives into progesterone and I keep having to dive back in because they keep finding more and more about it. When I first studied progesterone, all you could find was artificial progestins. That's what people were using. And the only reason we used them was to make the, uh, the uterus stop bleeding. And, uh, and so that was all anybody knew about. And if you read studies about progesterone, you were reading studies about artificial progestins. That's one of the that most, made it crazy making. One of the most frustrating <laughs> things in the literature, very specifically, is that is that you can go find a paper that will conclude something about progesterone, and you get to page three, and then you realize, oh. You guys are using the wrong language. You're talking about a synthetic progestin that in some ways mimics progesterone, and in some other ways, they certainly aren't progestation, right? They're um, problematic, um, and it makes it hard to, to figure out what's actually true of this hormone. So I appreciate that description. Um, it's a great introduction to what we're talking about. So, so we're looking at a hormone that's going to stay relatively flat until ovulation, and then there's this surge. And the surge indicates that ovulation happens. So when, when do we actually want to test women for their progesterone generally in a normal cycle, let's say a 28-day cycle? Well, uh, ideally, you want to test hormones when they are the highest because that's when they're the easiest to test and the, when the results are the most reliable. So the uh, progesterone in a normal menstrual cycle is the highest at mid-luteal phase. Right. So 
uh, about day 21 is in a 28-day cycle is the ideal time to test progesterone. Now, that's not when estrogen is the highest because estrogen peaks at ovulation. Right. However, estrogen is produced by the ovary uh, in co concert with progesterone, so estrogen levels do go up and they also peak again in the luteal phase. So the ideal time to measure both is mid-luteal phase, day 21, uh, because then you don't have to do multiple uh, tests. And so it's cheaper and it makes, it makes sense to do it that way. And you know you've ovulated if the levels of estrogen and progesterone go up in the luteal phase. Right. I, I've used the word plateau. I, what I appreciate about what a woman does in days for us, we've looked at the statistics and between about 19 and 22 is a nice little plateau in a normal cycle to see whether there's enough progesterone or not. So if my progesterone is really, really low, it implies that the woman didn't ovulate. And if the progesterone is higher than that, but yet still not quite enough, uh, you may say she's ovulated, but she's got insufficient progesterone. So do you see a distinction in terms of symptoms in a woman, whether she's not ovulating or she's ovulating, but just not quite making enough progesterone? How would you differentiate between those women in terms of what you expect them to maybe complain about? Okay, well, first of all, let me say that you've got to be sure that you've got the right date for ovulation. So what you really want to do is test a week after ovulation. And if right. you don't know when ovulation occurred, uh, that's difficult. And some women ovulate very early in their cycle, and some women ovulate late in their cycle. But the peak of estrogen and progesterone occurs about 14 days later. So if you haven't gotten the right ovulation date, you're not going to get the right uh, lab test uh, information. And you may think you have a low progesterone when you just didn't pick the right day to, right. to find the peak. Right. So how do women behave when they don't have enough progesterone? Well, the first thing that happens is they have spotting leading into and out of their period. The progesterone doesn't prepare the lining for menses. And so they tend to dribble a lot. They tend to have spotting before, and then they dribble on out, spot on out. So they don't have a nice brisk onset of bleeding that lasts three or four days, and then it goes away. Right. And that makes it hard sometimes for women to tell you when the first day of their last period was. You have to ask them, when was the, when was the first heavy day of bleeding, not when was the first day you bled. Right. And so I learned to say, you know, like, your, day one of your cycle is the first heavy day of bleeding. So that's the first thing is the spotting. The second thing is uh, women get premenstrual symptoms. So, you know, think of all the symptoms that you associate with premenstrual syndrome, you know, headaches and irritability and breast tenderness and um, just, you know, practically anything you can think of that women complain about is going to sort of end up in that, in that area of their menstrual cycle. And, um, and a lot of them have to do with either too much estrogen or too little progesterone. So these two hormones have to play together. And if they're not playing together, um, you're gonna throw things out of whack because so many uh, uh, organ systems and tissue types require 
uh, a change to get ready for a pregnancy or a change to create a pregnancy and maintain it, and then a, a change back so that those fast-growing parts of, of the uh, system don't just take off and, and uh, get into trouble with things like cancers. Right, so, so if so, you're talking about breast tenderness, the breast tenderness would be the proliferation from the estrogen without progesterone there in adequate levels to balance that and, and to bring that back into what's what's normal? Is that a fair description of what's going on there? It, it can be. Uh, breast tenderness, uh, progesterone causes more uh, growth, but it also causes maturation of breast tissue. So it turns it into the kind of tissue you're gonna need to nurse a baby. And, and then uh, the progesterone drops off and those cells go into apoptosis. And if you don't get that drop off in progesterone, you don't get the apoptosis and so your breasts get more and more and more uncomfortable with each cycle. So um, when the estrogen goes up, a breast that's not cycling properly is gonna be more uncomfortable. And it's interesting because, you know, progesterone in the uterus makes cells stop growing and progesterone in the breast makes cells grow. And it's actually in the uterus, progesterone is making cells grow. It's the stromal cells that it's stimulating to become decidualized. Uh, whereas in the breast, it is the glandular tissue as well as the stromal tissue that is stimulated uh, to um, prepare the breast for breastfeeding. So estrogen is kind of a, a one-trick pony. It makes things grow. And progesterone is a modulator. And it can do, it can do both depending on, it, it may end up being dependent, depending on not only the level of progesterone uh, in the tissue, which is hard to measure, um, but also the metabolites of progesterone. Uh, that may be different for different people, just like the estrogen metabolites are different for different people. Oh, interesting. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll come back to that. That might be interesting to pick at a little bit as far as progesterone metabolites. Um, so we're talking about women who don't make enough progesterone, which is the usual topic about progesterone. Let me just ask you briefly, though, if I dose you with progesterone, obviously I can get you into a place where you have too much and you might feel particular symptoms. Um, is it is it really um, something we even have to think about about a premenopausal woman ovulating, making progesterone, and making too much progesterone? Does that happen? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, you can overdose people with progesterone. Uh, there are two things that I've seen happen. Uh, one was a woman who uh, had a lot of uh, premenstrual symptoms and estrogen dominant symptoms, and she was put on progesterone and she felt better. And then after a while, she didn't feel so good, so she took some more progesterone, and then she felt better. And then she started not feeling so good, and right. so she took some more progesterone, and then she began to, so she came to see me, and she was on more progesterone. I think she was on 4,000 milligrams of progesterone a day. Oh, and, wow. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. You can't, you can't do this. She said, well, I can't get off the progesterone. I said, well... Let me tell you what you're doing with your progesterone. The reason you don't feel good is your estrogen level is high and your testosterone level is high, but the reason is you're driving progesterone down those pathways. And if you get off the progesterone, your estrogen and testosterone will drop and you'll feel better. So you can go as slow as you want to, 
but you gotta wean yourself down to I don't know maybe 400 milligrams a day, and we'll recheck. <laughs> so we rechecked her hormones at 400 milligrams a day, and her estrogen and testosterone were boom back into the normal range. Was she taking it so, orally or as a cream or what? She was using a cream, and she did it all the time. Okay, wow. She was like getting a brain hit every time she put progesterone on her skin. Wow. And so she would come into my office and get out her progesterone and put it on her skin. Because she couldn't go for, you know, two hours without some progesterone. Oh, interesting. So I've seen that. The other thing you see is people who say, oh, I got that progesterone, but... Boy, I'm like Logie. I can't drive to work when I take that stuff. So you need to tell people the first time they take it, take it at night. Pay attention to are you too, you know, out of it to drive or, you know, be around, take care of the kids or whatever you have to do. And um, so I have seen people who got too much bioidentical progesterone, which of course is metabolized into a brain-active metabolite allopregnenolone, which makes people feel good some of the time. I mean, a lot of people with irritable brains from too much estrogen kind of makes you irritable. Progesterone smooths that out, and they love that. In fact, women on birth control pills are missing that. And give them a little progesterone, and they are happy to stay on their pills. But if you give too much progesterone, and maybe if you have somebody that has a big upregulated metabolism of allopregnenolone, you can make people pretty spacey. It's the alpha GABA receptor agonist, right? A function of progesterone, and of course, GABA receptors. That's what. That's why we take in anxiolytics and uh, sleep medicine and uh, all of those things. So you can get that. Right, right. Which is why we pay a lot of attention when people take, in particular, oral progesterone to not just what those levels are, but which way are they pushing it towards the alpha metabolite of progesterone, which is in that family of allopregnenolone, uh, or down the less active um, beta pathway. Um, Let me pick at the supplementation a little bit. you know, we've talked before about the fact that the, the literature doesn't seem to support well enough the use of a progesterone cream to support someone who's on estrogen replacement therapy. That typically it's oral and it's, progest- and it's vaginal progesterone where we see the evidence in the literature that it does enough to balance the endometrium. But let me, let me rewind the clock on you to the premenopausal woman who's 35, had two kids, just doesn't feel very well. And so the picture in your mind is... Uh, estrogen dominance, she's ovulating, but not making enough progesterone. What are you doing with that woman? First thing I want to ask you is, are there things you pursue outside of progesterone supplementation to help support the woman's natural production of progesterone? Again, if she's ovulating, but just making insufficient progesterone to balance that estrogen. Well, the first thing I think about is if we want to balance estrogen, is she making too much too much estrogen? Right. So I'm going to be giving her supplements to help her get her estrogen out of the way. So when we when we find a woman who's got some dysfunction as it relates to progesterone, we want to be looking at the picture comprehensively. We we like that. But when you start giving again a premenopausal woman who's got mm-hmm. insufficient progesterone. Um, are you reaching for progesterone as a cream or oral progesterone or what, uh, what do you tend to reach for in your toolbox with a premenopausal woman who's just a little short on progesterone? Well, I like to start with transdermal progesterone. Okay. And, um, 
you can give it as a cream or you can give it as uh, drops in propylene glycol, which I got really good at doing. And, uh, and uh, the time where I would switch to oral progesterone is when I want that first pass through the liver. So I want to get more allopregnine. To help with in that sleep. situation, gotcha. you're taking a pill at bedtime. And most women are happy to do that. Um, some women really hate the creams, and a lot of women hate vaginal cream because it's a nasty discharge. Right. Um, but um, but some, often they don't mind the cream, and you know they can buy it at the counter, and it works pretty well. And so if they don't have to use too much of it, uh, they do really well. And so I ask them to put it over blood vessels because I really would like like it to go into the circulation and not in fat, so I don't tell them to put it on their abdomen, I don't tell them to put it on their breasts, I tell them to put it on their elbows, their wrists, right. maybe even their neck. Um, I don't think you have to worry as much about contaminating your husband and your children. With progesterone, uh, right. With progesterone, as you do with estrogen. You do have to worry about that with estrogen. Um, but um, progesterone has so many pathways of metabolism that it almost disappears before you can use it. So uh, it's been one of the problems with progesterone is uh, the reason we can buy progesterone cream over the counter is for a long time physicians thought that it didn't do anything because you couldn't measure progesterone in the blood. And so people thought, well, it must be safe because you know you don't get a blood level and so it can't be a problem. But uh, I think that's not true. I think you can overdose on Even transdermal, transdermal. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about before how tricky the lab picture is with the creams that I think there's a pragmatism to them uh, helping women to feel better in the premenopausal phase. But but getting a number that says you should up or lower the dose, um, the really the evidence doesn't really support that. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of pick your brain on this topic is since progesterone sort of emerged we say, you know, in the maybe the early 90s as, and became more popular in its use and, and rightfully so in some respects. Uh, can you take us back a little bit to what kind of led to that emergence and what we learned from that that was positive and maybe if there are some areas where that pro-progesterone message uh, kind of went off the tracks? Yeah. Well, uh, we knew we wanted something that acted like progesterone in the uterus to uh, stop the overproliferation that we got from estrogen. And so we came up with artificial progestins that were well absorbed orally, you could take them in a pill, and they had a huge effect on the endometrium. I mean, they clamped that sucker down and got rid of the bleeding, but they didn't do the same thing in other tissues in the body. So women didn't feel as well on them, and they uh, didn't have the same cardiovascular effects and bone effects. And so the people who were really paying attention said, eh, we got to get a, something that works a bit more like bioidentical progesterone. And so they began working on how do we get bioidentical progesterone molecules into uh, a pill that, that will actually have an effect. And they discovered if you micronize progesterone, you could put it in a pill and people would absorb it in high enough amounts to actually get a level in the uterus that could balance estrogen. So then the micronized uh, progesterone came out. And uh, 
you know, I picked up on that, that happened before I really uh, knew about natural progesterone, but um, but it was around, and there were some people um, who were uh, really playing with studying and looking at bioidentical estrogen and bioidentical progesterone. Now, the conventional world got to bioidentical estrogen, estradiol, much faster than they got to bioidentical progesterone. They're yeah. still catching up on the bioidentical progesterone. But they began, you begin noticing that birth control pills and postmenopausal hormone uh, therapies uh, were, they just weren't studying anything but estradiol anymore. Right. And um, you could buy the other stuff because they've been studied and so forth. But, but they began really pushing towards estradiol. But the progesterones, uh, they couldn't, still couldn't figure out how to get enough on board, uh, uh, even with micronized progesterones. So uh, they're just now beginning to put together hormone re replacement therapy, you know, FDA-approved hormone replacement therapy that has estradiol and bioidentical progesterone. And I'm waiting for the birth control pill that has those two things in it, because I think that's going to be a much much better, uh, uh, much more acceptable um, uh, drug for women. Um, so, uh, you know, back in the 90s was when I sort of came into the complementary alternative uh, scene. Right. And um, John Lee had written his book, um, which um, uh said progesterone was magic and you could use it for everything. Right. <laughs> and um, I kind of immediately go, wait, <laughs> like that's never the case. You know, like what's what's right about that book? Why is he getting good results with a lot of people and what's wrong about the book? And so that was probably the first point at which I began to use progesterone and see what it could do and what it couldn't do. And uh, so I always used some uh, artificial progestins if I wanted a powerful effect in the uterus. Right. You know, we call it a medical DNC. Um, if you really want to empty out the uterus and start over with the lining of the uterus, you use an artificial progestin, but you just do it for one cycle, maybe two. Um, but if you want continuous therapy for women who, uh, who need to balance estrogen and progesterone and aren't making enough progesterone and you can't deal with the stress uh, for various reasons, then um, using uh, progesterone, bioidentical progesterone, uh, in addition to their normal ovulation, uh, I think is, uh, is pretty easy to learn to do and pretty safe. It's, you know, the nice thing about progesterone is you don't get uh, the same kind of horrible uh, side effects that you do if you overdose on estrogen. Right. Um, so I've uh, so I've used that, and then I uh, began to learn that timing was important. You don't want to give the progesterone before the ovulation happens because you can inhibit ovulation with yeah, progesterone. And so if you start progesterone, you know, if you only go off for one week. I've seen some protocols where you take it for three weeks and then you're off for a week. Well, then what happens is uh, you go back on it before you've ovulated and you may not ovulate and then, or you may not ovulate well. And I'm telling you, the corpus luteum can make a lot more progesterone than I can give in a pill. So, um, so I'm careful about 
trying to time my progesterone with ovulation and stop it when the first heavy day of bleeding starts. Uh, and I've had pretty good success treating treating women that way, both pre and uh, and I, I have a different sort of plan postmenopausally. My, as you know, um, I have a tendency to say um, Mother Nature's been doing this for several billion years, and I've only been doing it for about forty-four years. So <laughs> right. maybe she knows more about this than I do, and I should like try to do it the way she does it. So I've always tried to mimic Mother Nature. Uh, when I give hormones, and that's uh, part of why I use progesterone and part of why I use it the way I do. Right, so meaning when a premenopausal woman, you're expecting about a two-week surge of progesterone, and you mimic that in the supplementation and in dosing progesterone the last two weeks of the cycle and then not the first two weeks of the cycle. Is that right? Exactly. And then in a post in a postmenopausal woman, you know we know the studies don't support its use entirely uh, to protect the endometrium if it's given as a cream. So in the postmenopausal scenario, we're not going to get deep into HRT, but your go-to in terms of route of administration, general dosing, and how many weeks on and off. What what does that look like for you in a sort of stereotypical estrogen replacement therapy case for a postmenopausal woman? Okay, so first of all, you have to ask, are you early postmenopausal or late postmenopausal? Because early postmenopausal women still have quite a bit of estrogen around. Right. And if you've got quite a bit of estrogen around, then you're going to uh, need progesterone in your supplementation. And you may need to cycle it. Um, Depending on how much estrogen there is, if you give continuous progesterone, you're going to get like you wouldn't believe so you want to cycle so, um so i try to judge well how long have how long has it been since your last period and i will give progesterone alone until i give progesterone alone and i don't get any bleeding at that point i begin to add low dose estrogen back in now when you ask what does mother nature do here when she gets to the part where there's not enough estrogen to create bleeding the progesterone comes from the adrenals. It's, it is, right. uh, it is uh, produced more or less continuously in low doses unless you're stressed out and you're stealing all your progesterone away to make cortisol. So those are the women that are going to have trouble with the early menopause and sometimes late menopause. And some of them may need progesterone in order to keep that balance going. But what you want to do is address the problem and not the symptoms. The problem is the stress and the, and the cortisol issue. And if you can get that under control, then you don't really need to give much progesterone, maybe none, uh, uh, depending on whether you're giving a lot of estrogen. So if you're someone who is trying to return women to premenopausal levels of hormone, you're going to have to give progesterone. And you're going to have to cycle. And they're going to have periods. And in yeah. those cases, are you you typically uh, using oral progesterone in those cases? Um, yeah, if I had to get enough progesterone on board, I would give oral. If I wasn't giving estrogen, I might try using progesterone cream. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. The- so the, what I believe about the progesterone cream and the endometrium is it will inhibit proliferation of the endometrium, but it's not enough to bring on a period. So they won't have a period, but they also don't get a, a endometrial hyperplasia very often. 
the uh, nerdy laboratory side of the oral progesterone is interesting in that if you go back to the 80s, you see these luteal, meaning sufficient levels of progesterone with oral, which gave confidence. And then yeah, we know from the studies that it worked, right? And yeah. then as the analytical types go back in and dig into it, you find that those luteal levels are actually wrong, that a lot of that's you're using an immunoassay. And when you give progesterone orally, your gut makes lots of stuff that look an awful lot like progesterone. And those cross-react with the immunoassays, so those numbers are wrong. And they're actually oftentimes not luteal, but then you succeed there sort of by accident because you still are getting endometrial protection, endometrial protection because a lot of the impact that's progesterone-like is coming from the little bit of progesterone that escapes the gut and also all of those progesterone metabolites that have some progesterone impact. So it's, it's an interesting case study in just how complex these things get. Um, but we do know from the studies that oral progesterone works. The serum values aren't particularly helpful because they're inflated by all those metabolites cross-reacting with the assay. Um, so for us, you know, we're not really able to say what's going on in the endometrium. We know those doses work. And then what we're looking at is, well, if you're taking it orally, it's going to help with, with sleep. Well, progesterone doesn't help with sleep. It really acts as a pro-hormone in that case, right, which is feeding that allopregnenolone, which hits the GABA receptor and helps with sleep. Um, have you found that helpful in women who are on oral progesterone at looking at the way their body, and I guess specifically you'd say their gut, is shuttling the progesterone either towards that alpha progesterone metabolite pathway or to the less active beta progesterone metabolite pathway? Have you found that helpful in, in those women? You know, I, uh, I, my approach to progesterone was a lot less scientific and a lot more um, related to the, the results I got in terms of symptoms. So I can't say that I know uh, whether it was the, the uh, which pathway um, women were metabolizing it down and, and was that why they had better or worse brain response from it. But the, uh, what I understand about the progesterone metabolites is they are not, um, they are not um, DNA uh, uh, driving uh, receptors. They, they, are, um, they are driving things out in the, in the cell membrane just like some of the estrogen uh, effects are cell membrane effects, the progesterone metabolites affect the cell membrane. Well, that gives you like another whole level of complexity. And so that kind of makes me wonder, you know, uh, um, is it the metabolites in the gut that we're dealing with? And you're saying that the metabolites were all over the place uh, and, and bumping up the what we thought were progesterone levels when really we were goosing metabolites like crazy. So uh, maybe, you know, we need to go back and do these studies again and look at the metabolites. Yeah, the progesterone story is interesting in a sort of complex way in that, you know, in the urine, in the absence of supplementation, you know, we've published our data that says, hey, those each of those metabolites just taken as individual markers uh, predict serum progesterone really well. So in that sense, they're helpful as a surrogate. You measure them both and you've got a pretty good idea of how much progesterone the patient's making. And then you start asking questions about, well, does it matter which one that you're making, either the alpha or the beta, which one you're preferring? And we, we tend to look at that story more with supplementation. We talked before about John Weeb's work, which, you know, hasn't really been 
um, fleshed out entirely. But what he showed is that those alpha metabolites, when you look at those given to breast cancer cells, that they're proliferative. So there's this interesting story about the woman who shoves her progesterone down that alpha pathway and maybe some caution to use about not overdoing the use of progesterone to create the alpha metabolites to help with sleep because in overdoing that there might be a breast cancer story that's that's interesting and noteworthy um, but that work hasn't really been followed up on to the level that we can we can look at that with confidence but we we still talk about that with our providers um, because there is you know potentially an association there as you know we've showed of alpha metabolites being proliferative and that maybe that's something to be uh, to be cautious of um, I think you're I think you're right about that you know I've been as you know um, always cautious about progesterone because of its um, uh, its proliferative capability and uh, a lot of people say no no bioidentical progesterone doesn't cause breast cancer because we know that from the e3n study but if you actually read the study and not just the abstract what it shows is on average it doesn't increase breast cancer but if you look at it over time the older you are the farther you are from menopause in other words the lower your estrogen levels the more progesterone becomes proliferative and can increase breast cancer risk so um so i've uh, been curious about the proliferative aspects of progesterone and it does get into the cell cycle uh, in some interesting ways and it, if you give a load of progesterone you get a cell cycle turnover and then you get the maturational aspect of progesterone so I think you have to be kind of careful about progesterone and I also think you have to be careful about cyclic progesterone each time you cycle you're pushing those cells through a cycle a cell cycle um, of division. It's interesting that um, I think some things, medicine's easier, I think, if you can simplify concepts. Um, but then you also have to continue to dig because I just read a, a study the other day that was talking about the four hydroxy estrogens. This was in a rat study, but we only think of that metabolite in its negative context. Um, mm -hmm. And we often only think of progesterone in its positive context. And what this paper was showing is that four hydroxy estrogens have some neuroprotective behavior in a certain scenario in a rat model. And it just got me thinking about, um, you know, just the proper perspective that everything that has the power to help uh, generally has the power to hurt in a certain context. And I think with, with progesterone, you know, being uh, conscious of what the literature says and, uh, but also being careful of not treating it, um, you know, like something like vitamin C that, um, you know, if a little is good, um, that just, you know, getting more and more of it is necessarily something that we should uh, ever consider uh, without some caution. I think, you know, I go home to mama, you know, uh, try to do what Mother Nature does and start low, work up slowly, tell your patient, you know, it's not like a pill, you're not going to have total uh, reversal of all your symptoms 20 minutes after you take a pill. You're going to have to work your way into the right balance of hormones. And we're going to start here, and then we're going to see where we are, and then we're going to see how the symptoms are, and then we may go up a little again. And I let patients do that, that slow increases on their own until they tell me that they like how they feel. And at that point, we measure hormone levels and find out if we've 
sent somebody over the, over the hill with way, way too much hormone or we don't really have enough hormone. And I'm much more likely to be happy with not enough hormone and no symptoms than I am somebody who is complaining of symptoms, but their hormone levels are way high and out of whack. Because what that usually means is it's not your hormones that are causing those symptoms. There's, you know, there's almost nothing, there's almost no symptom I saw that uh, was just one hormone. You know, it's, everything works in, in symphony. You know, they work in concert, they talk to each other. One raises this one, this one lowers this one, and you have to understand some of those relationships before you give the first hormone. You're gonna be real surprised at some of the weird things that happen to your patient when you give them a hormone that you thought was gonna, you know, make them feel better for this particular symptom and suddenly you've given it to somebody who metabolizes that hormone completely different or it backed up some other hormone they're taking or God forbid they're on five different medications right. and you don't know what their hormones do. So I, you know, start slow, start low, work up and listen to symptoms. And then when you feel like you've got things where you want them, then that's when you want to come back and do your next hormone level. And I think the evaluation, I mean, that's why for us, we've been so passionate about the comprehensive nature of testing that when, you know, if you isolate the story to progesterone and you have a patient that has an HPA axis that's going crazy or has a concurrent estrogen issue or an estrogen metabolism issue, uh, much as we want to simplify the story, you know, for us, we want to look broadly at reproductive and adrenal hormones and see what's going on. Um, and that's where the complexity of that means we have to educate um, and that's been really great to, to hear you sort of tell that progesterone story, which I think, um, I think highlights that in a way that um, allows our providers to understand it at a deeper level um, as we try to help patients uh, who have these imbalances in their reproductive hormones. So thank you for joining us today and making that story a little bit clearer for us. I appreciate it. I hope so. Thank you. Dr. Hayes, thank you so much for joining us today. We now have a much better understanding of progesterone and its purpose thanks to your insights. On next week's episode, we'll continue to dive into our Endocrine Essentials series with the Dutch expert, Dr. Debbie Rice. She'll be talking about all things estrogen and estrogen detox. This will be an exciting episode where you'll get to go deeper in your understanding of how your body creates and detoxifies estrogen. I'm Noah Reed. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time.